0: Everything, going to be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlo and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3.
1: Welcome in to RP3 and Company on a Monday morning. Dawson Eiserlo in for Raymond Parch the third. our guy RP3, who is traveling home from Dallas after covering the LSU women's basketball team winning their first national championship. That's right. Kim Mulkey's team got it done. What a weekend it was across the sports landscape. Um, we've got a ton to get to here today, and we have a great show lined up. So, of course, we will talk LSU women Um, and what Kim Mulkey's team did yesterday, Um, first of all, we have to go back and talk about what they did on Friday, of course, because the Final Four took place on Friday. They won that game. They got a result that they probably liked in that Iowa took down South Carolina, the overwhelming favorite of the tournament. Um, And then LSU got it done again yesterday, so we will discuss that. We will have Jeff Palermo on, as we always do on Mondays, and we'll talk to him a little bit about that, also get his perspective on the LSU baseball team, who had a big series as well when they took on Tennessee, another top-ten matchup, and the Tigers passed the test yet again, so we'll do that with him. Then, of course, we will have RP3 on. Can't have RP3 and company without the big, bald, and beautiful one, so we will check in with him in the third hour and kind of get his overall takeaways and perspective. We'll dive in a little bit more on Kim Monkey's team, you know, what it was like to be in the building. Cause of course, RP three was on hand in Dallas for that one kind of get some of those perspectives um, as well as, um, you know, just hear kind of what he thought about the, the way the game played out. Then of course, kind of the celebration afterwards and the press conference and, and kind of hear what he has to say about that. So that will be exciting But even aside from that, of course, LSU wins a national championship, so we will spend some time on it. But it was opening day in Major League Baseball. Um, We got to talk a little bit about that on Friday because of opening day being on Thursday. But the Astros have now played a full weekend. So, of course, still incredibly early in the season. But we have some things to talk about there um, with what Houston did. And then maybe if we get a chance to touch on a couple other things across Major League Baseball. But honestly, we're probably going to have to wait until later in the week to really dive into some of those stories. Um, The Pelicans... They're back. Let's go. The New Orleans Pelicans, hottest team in the league right now. Who'd have thought? Uh, They win a huge game against the Clippers over the weekend to kind of increase their chances of not only getting into the play-in tournament, but how about getting out of the play-in tournament, but in a good way, not falling out of it completely. I'm talking about jumping into the guaranteed playoff portion of the Western Conference standings. The Pelicans are right there. Now the Lakers also won last night, so they're they're right there with the Pels. They're tied, equal records, but we will talk about the Pelicans and their big win and what is a huge week ahead. Of course, last week of the regular season is uh, this one. It's going to conclude on Sunday, so the Pelicans have everything that they want right in front of them, and we will discuss that a little bit uh, Cajuns baseball lost a tough series to App State. I was there for the finale yesterday, so I'll give some thoughts on that series and kind of where they stand in the Sun Belt. First series loss in Sun Belt play, not the end of the world, but um, you know I'll give a few thoughts on that. And LSU did win that baseball series, as we mentioned. It was uh, it was impressive. They continue to kind of pass all those tests. They haven't quite been sweeping these conference series, but you're playing top ten opponents. You know it's it's not like they're playing weaker. You know, not even middle or bottom level SEC teams. They're playing the top teams. We talked about how much of a gauntlet the beginning of the schedule was, and they've continued uh, to handle their business there. And then the men's Final Four championship game will be tonight. The national title on the line, UConn and San Diego State. Not the matchup everybody had before the tournament, but um, a matchup that's really intriguing for a lot of different reasons, and we'll kind of talk about that. All that and more here on an. Exciting Monday edition of RP3 and Company recapping what was um, you know one of the busier sports weekends that we have had in a while, especially in this area, of course, um, in South Louisiana had a little bit more significance. Um, so that's all on tap for today. but let's start with the LSU women because um, it was a season, you know, from the very beginning in which Kim Mulkey's team had expectations, but not these expectations, right? Um, they were thought of pretty highly, thought to be you know probably going to be a ranked team, um, you know top fifteen. I don't think was out of the question. A top ten team was was maybe starting to feel like it was a stretch because they were, you know, not as loaded as some of Kim Mulkey's past teams, of course at Baylor and some of the national championship teams there. But they did bring in Angel Reese, who was expected to kind of raise the level of this team and help out Alexis Morris and some of the returning players. Um, Kim Mulkey used the transfer portal effectively, but that kind of came into place a little bit later on in the process. And, you know, I'm just not sure that anybody could have foreseen what, what took place this season. We talked of course, uh, extensively about the week out of conference schedule and that was done on purpose at the time because Angel Reese wasn't a part of the roster at that point and Kim Mulkey didn't really know what she had. So she wanted a schedule that was going to kind of build confidence heading into SEC play. Um, You know, I'm sure she thought maybe they were going to lose a couple of those tougher non-conference games, even though there wasn't, you know, there weren't many uh, top-ranked teams on the schedule, right? But that didn't happen, and they kind of rolled through non-conference, and then, of course, the questions became, well, you know, what's going to happen when they face top-level competition? And it didn't go well when they played South Carolina on Super Bowl Sunday on the road. Uh, They got handled in that game, and so I think then, once again, the expectations were tempered a little bit, and it felt like... You know, this is a great story. This team's ahead of schedule. If they make a nice run in the tournament, you know, of course, last year they were upended in the second round. So if they make it to the Sweet 16, Elite Eight, that's going to be a tremendous season. And that kind of became the focus the rest of the way. They lost the game in the SEC tournament to Tennessee that they maybe shouldn't have lost, but um, they went into the NCAA tournament and they handled their first round game pretty easily against Hawaii. They moved on and they got past Michigan, and it was already like, okay, well, this is this is a successful season. If it ends here, then it ends here. But that's not what they had in mind. Um, And, you know, going into the bracket, we had kind of discussed the path for them, and and we talked about Indiana and and how that was going to be really difficult to get past. And, you know, the good news was that South Carolina was on the other side of the bracket, so you had that going for you. But Indiana was so good and just so deep as a roster. You you thought that wasn't going to be a great matchup. Well, then throughout this tournament, some things started falling into place. Um, and Indiana went down. And, you know, that was something that, you know, I don't know if LSU gets past Indiana if they play him in this tournament. I really don't. But it doesn't matter because Indiana lost early. You end up playing Miami, they win that one. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is even the Virginia Tech matchup, it, it was a one seed, but it felt like a pretty good matchup. There wasn't a game that LSU played in this tournament where you said, oh, they don't have a shot. I, it's just, you know. And, and I don't know how many teams there would have been that you'd have felt that way about. Maybe South Carolina's the only one definitively where you'd have felt that they didn't have a good chance. Um, but they didn't play any of those teams, and Utah was certainly a tough matchup, but they got through it. And then Virginia Tech was a very difficult matchup, and they got through it, and it was a comeback victory. Um, and that led them to Iowa. And, of course, when they won their semifinal game on Friday, it felt like it was going to be LSU versus South Carolina rematch version two for all the marbles this time in the national championship game. But of course, Caitlin Clark had other ideas. The phenomenal talent from Iowa kind of, uh, you know, upended those plans for the rematch. And again, I I think LSU probably, you know, I don't know if they would tell you this, but they probably were pretty happy not to see South Carolina again. Um, and so, you know, from there, it became a situation where when you saw that result, you said, wait a minute, they've got a real shot here. Like, they have a real legitimate chance to win the national championship. You know, I won't say out of the blue again because this team was supposed to be good, but, you know, women's basketball doesn't have the most parity at the top, right? Um, There's been increasingly more parity throughout the middle levels of women's college basketball, but the best teams typically win the title. Um, And, you know, you don't usually have a team come out of and again, I don't even want to say nowhere, but you don't even usually have a team come out of, let's say that 15 to 25 ranked range and win a championship. And that's what LSU did yesterday. So they get it done against Iowa and Caitlin Clark. Um, it was impressive. They had a plan for her and look, Caitlin got hers and she is a phenomenal talent. It was exciting, I think, for everyone to kind of see women's basketball on display. And I thought that was really, you know, something that, Women's basketball probably needed, you know, they needed their biggest star um, and their biggest stars, plural, in a game like this. And that's what you had with Angel Reese on one end and Caitlin Clark on the other. And, um, you know, look, I'll say this. I thought the game was not officiated well on either side, really. Um, I thought there was a lot of foul calls early that could have been, you know, avoided. The interesting thing is they kind of let them play later on in the game. But at that point, you had already changed the game because... LSU had players sitting with foul trouble in the first half. Uh, Iowa had players sitting with tra- foul trouble in the first half, and you kind of fundamentally changed how the game was played. Caitlin Clark was on the bench for a long time. Angel Reese was on the bench for a long time. And again, like if a lot of fouls are taking place, I'm not suggesting you don't call them, but you kind of want your star players on this stage to be showcased. And I, you know, I thought that took away a little bit from this title game, so I was disappointed with that, but. Um, it, the good thing about it is it wasn't definitively on one, one way or the other to where you could feel like this result was skewed. Uh, I thought both teams got bad calls. So, so in that regard, you know, no, no issues there as far as one team getting a ton of calls or the other. Um, the other thing that happened is Caitlin Clark was called for a technical foul. I wasn't a fan of it. Um, essentially it was called for delay of game because if you saw what happened, it was late in the uh, it was late in the ball game, and Caitlin Clark was a little bit frustrated after um, you know a dead ball essentially happened, and she kind of took the ball and, and kind of tossed it behind her back, um, not at anyone in particular. She wasn't looking, and there was no one over there except you know photographers and things like that. Um, and they called her for delay of game, and by the rule book, I guess they said they had warned her already, but. It's a dead ball too, and I, I, you know, that's so that's not exactly delay of game because it didn't impact anything. It did not slow them from starting play again. So I was disappointed with that call, but um, that doesn't take away from what was a great display for women's college basketball. And LSU gets it done. They got it from a variety of sources. It was not the Angel Reese show, which I think is kind of um, something we've been saying for so long. Who's going to step up? Who's going to step up and help Angel and help Alexis? And Jasmine Carson stepped up in a big way. She was unbelievable in this game. Um, so, you know, something like that that we maybe just didn't quite see coming. Um, and, and the shooting in the first half for LSU in particular was really something we never could have even expected. I mean, they shot the lights out in the first half, more so than they've done in any game all season long. Um, a team that was struggling from three, even in this tournament, and they hit a bunch of threes in this ball game. And felt like they couldn't miss in the first half. And Iowa made a couple of runs to try and get back in it. Um, again, Clark was really good. I mean, she is so good from the outside. She can shoot it from anywhere. And, and her passing ability is also elite. So um, I thought they did good enough job to hold her in check. She didn't have 40 points the way she you know had been and the way she had against South Carolina. So that was a job well done defensively. And all in all, um, LSU gets the job done. And they are the national champions for the first time in school history. So, we will touch, of course, more on that throughout the show, and um, we'll kind of get perspectives from different people. We will, of course, talk to RP3, who was over in Dallas, um, so that should be exciting. But um, when we come back from the break, we're going to switch gears a little bit, talk about the New Orleans Pelicans. They get a huge win to uh, just kind of shift the landscape in the Western Conference just a bit. So, we'll discuss that next, right here on RP3 and Company.
0: This is RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU sports update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: Welcome back in to a Monday edition of RP3 and Company. Dawson Iserloh in for RP3, who is traveling back after having covered the LSU Women's National Championship victory in Dallas. So I want to remind you we are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction I want to switch gears, and you know, you guys who listen to the show regularly know that RP3 gives me a tough time about the Pelicans, and rightfully so, for the most part. They have been, um, ever since I've been on this show, they've not been playing well, Um, really from the beginning. They had a couple of stretches where they won a couple of games here and there, but, um, you know, it went forever without having a winning streak. I mean, they just... They weren't playing good basketball, and of course Zion's been out for almost all of that time, and it just felt like this team wasn't ever really going to put it together. Even when Brandon Ingram came back from his injury, they couldn't put things together. You know, it was just something off about them. Guys weren't playing well. Guys who had taken the next step in their development, it felt like in Herb Jones, Trey Murphy, those guys weren't giving you as quality of minutes as you were expecting. Um, and it just felt overall like this team just couldn't put things together. And, you know, we, we kept saying, well, what, what, what's the issue? Because last year this team didn't have Zion. That's the big thing, I think. You know, when a team doesn't have their star, you know, you understand that they're not playing well and, and you maybe don't question it. You go, well, yeah, their best player's not playing. No wonder they're struggling. But the Pelicans were without Zion all of last year, and they put together such a great late season push and then won the play in tournament and then got into the NBA playoffs and put up a good fight in the playoffs, so where it's it felt like, well, this is a team that was ready to take the next step with or without Zion. So you know now all of a sudden you're missing him, but why isn't everything else you know playing out the way it did a season ago? And that was really difficult, and, you know. It took some growing pains when B.I. got back. He didn't look sharp his first few outings back. But then there still was this stretch of time where Brandon was playing pretty well and was giving you big numbers at least. But the rest of the offense and the rest of the team just didn't seem to fit in place. Um, and so that was an interesting way of, of, of things taking place, right? But then all of a sudden... You get this soft stretch of the schedule, which you know I know people keep bringing up how soft the schedule has been for most of this winning streak, but the Pelicans had stretches where the schedule was pretty soft before, and they didn't take advantage of them. The one main factor that they always couldn't overcome was playing on the road. I mean, this team had been awful on the road. So for them to kind of put things together and win these games, albeit it started against Houston and San Antonio, the bottom teams in the Western Conference, they have played they have looked like a completely different basketball team over the last couple of weeks they they really really have and you know i kind of have touched on this a little bit but brandon ingram's ability not only to score and he's scoring at a high level you know he's he, he's right around you know 30 points a game during this stretch i believe you know somewhere in that area and he's been fantastic offensively but what he's also been able to do is be a facilitator He's been able to set up his teammates. He's been able to create easier looks for them. And I think, you know, when he when it first started, Brandon Ingram's such a rhythm-based player. So when he comes back from injury, there's so much that he's trying to do just to get back in a rhythm offensively, you know, find his shot falling, you know, and, and just create some of those offensive situations that he thrives in. But once he was able to do that and get more comfortable, I saw kind of a concerted effort for him to get other guys involved. And that's when you've seen... This triple double surge where he is putting up, you know, triple doubles or close to them in the past couple of weeks. We saw it 30, you know, we're talking about 30.10 rebound, 10 assist type performances. And those 10 assists, I think, kind of are indicative of what he's been able to do other than just score the basketball. And his scoring, and it all starts, of course, with him getting his because once he gets his, that opens up opportunities. That allows the defense or forces, rather, the defense to collapse in on BI and he's been so much better. And on Saturday, you had what was you know, a difficult matchup on paper. It was a Clippers team that got Kawhi Leonard back. Kawhi Leonard was playing a back-to-back for the first time in like something like 4 years. Uh and Kawhi was on. Like it wasn't like Kawhi was kind of slow to come back and it was like, yeah, well Kawhi's out there but he's not really doing much. Kawhi Leonard had a fantastic game and he ends up with 40 15-28 to 28 shooting 4 of 8 from 3. And the Pelicans got off to a slow start, which has kind of doomed them at times when they've been losing a lot of games. They're down by 10 at the end of the first quarter. And so for all of that to be working against you, I know you're at home, though, and maybe that home crowd kind of helped to get them back in it. They didn't blink. And, you know, they cut all the way into that lead, get it, make it just a one-point deficit at halftime. That was huge, I thought. Uh, from the mental makeup of this team. And Russell Westbrook, you know, was pretty good as well. 24 points on three of six, three-point shooting. So the Clippers, who, yeah, they did not have Paul George, but they had Kawhi Leonard back, who's, you know, a better player than Paul George, in my opinion. And they're still fighting for every single spot they can in the Western Conference. That's another reason this, this game was so big. Now, the Pelicans had the tiebreaker over the Clippers no matter what happened in this game. But if they'd have lost it, you'd have been losing another full game on the Clippers, and you probably would not have been reached to potentially catch them. You just wouldn't have had enough time. Um, And if you lost this game, you'd have been really sitting in that situation where because you couldn't catch the Clippers, you'd have to catch Golden State, um, and it would have been a situation where I don't think the Pelicans would have had a chance to jump out of that play-in tournament and get up to that number 6 spot that we've been talking about for so long. But they did. They got that victory. They fight back. They have a great second half. Brandon Ingram leads the way with 36 points. And you just kind of continue the momentum that you've had, you know, for a few weeks now. And that's just something that I think is huge. And, you know, winning seven of eight and doing it again against, I understand you did it against some weaker competition at the beginning, but then you beat the Clippers on the road when they had a couple of more injuries. You beat the Blazers on the road. Okay, that's a weaker team. You go wire-to-wire with Golden State. You really had a chance to win it. We talked about that already, how you kind of let that one slip away. But then you go to Denver, and you beat Denver, albeit without Nikola Jokic, but that hasn't stopped Denver in the past from beating the Pelicans. And also, they're one of the best home teams in the NBA, and they dominated them on the road. And then to come back and do it against the Clippers, I you know, it's hard to feel like this team isn't turning a corner of sorts. And now, here we go. It's time to get our hearts broken again. As Pelicans fans, we know what's coming, right? It's all setting up this week. There's so much energy. There's so much emotion going on. This team's back. Here we go. We're due for a Zion update this week. And that just always seems, no matter how well things are going, that's always the thing that can temper your expectations and bring you back down to earth. So, look, if, if, you know, the two-week timeline, of course, we've gotten that two-week timeline over and over again, and it hasn't necessarily been exactly two weeks, but... I guess you could see an update today. I would be more like I would expect to see one tomorrow or Wednesday. And the thing is, of course, we've seen Zion ramping it up. This feels like the closest he's been, of course. But you really need that announcement to come back and say Zion's playing on Friday. That's that's my big hope. Would be that you get the announcement that Zion's going to play against the Knicks, the home finale on Friday. Um, it's a chance. Maybe for him to kind of make a heroic return and, more importantly, get a couple of games under his belt before the Pelicans have to jump into either the play-in tournament. Hopefully, it's just a playoff series. But that is my, you know, the big news I'd want to see. The Pelicans play a back-to-back on Tuesday and Wednesday. They've got the Kings on Tuesday night, the Grizzlies on Wednesday night. I don't think you're going to see him in either one of those games um, because again, I, you know, just the way that this timeline has gone, I don't think they're going to come out and say, Hey, by the way, Zion's back and he's playing tonight like that. That doesn't feel like the next progression to me. It feels like maybe they say on, you know, hopefully on Tuesday, tomorrow, since, you know, of course they will be made available to the media. We'll, we'll get to hear from some of the coaching staff and stuff on a game day. And I'm hoping that the next announcement is, yeah, Zion's ramping it up. He's going to go through shoot-around today. He's going to go through shoot-around tomorrow. We're going to see how he reacts. And best case, we're hoping he plays on Friday night. That's the update, if you're a Pelicans fan, that you're looking for. You know, I I know everybody wants him to play right away, but don't expect him to play today, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. Hope for Friday. And what, what that would give him is a perfect opportunity to maybe ramp things up, play, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes against the Knicks. Then they'll go on the road on Sunday to play Minnesota in what, by the way, could be a huge game in determining. Now, it no longer looks like the Pelicans are going to be playing that to determine whether they get in the play-in tournament because it feels like they're in. Um, they haven't uh, you know, mathematically clinched it yet, but they're very close. Um, and by the way, just to give an update on that, you know, Dallas still can't get out of their own way. They've lost three in a row again. So the Pelicans are now three and a half games clear of Dallas, who is the 11th spot. So they would have to fall all the way below the Mavericks to fall out of the play-in tournament. Um, And there's only four games left to play. So if if the Pelicans just win one of these games, they're going to be fine. Even if they don't, look, I I haven't seen enough from Dallas that makes me think they're going to run the table. Um, They've got to play the Kings, the Bulls, and the Spurs in their last three. So... It looks like the Pelicans are going to be a part of postseason basketball. It's just what sh- what shape and what form will that be in, and hopefully we're going to get some of those answers very soon, and hopefully the Pelicans jump into that number 6 spot. I still think it's possible. You trail Golden State and the Clippers both by a half game. Of course, the Pelicans have the outright tiebreaker over the Clippers, so it becomes a situation if you're scoreboard watching across the NBA you got to root against the Los Angeles Clippers who face the Lakers on Wednesday. That's a very losable game. They do face the Blazers on Saturday, and then they play Phoenix to round out the season. So um, things are looking up in the Big Easy, and hopefully it's another big week, and maybe we can have some fun playoff basketball again this time of year. That That's always fun when the playoffs ramp up and the Pelicans are actually part of it, uh, which we don't get to see every year. So we will see what happens. we got to take a timeout, but... When we return, I want to talk a little Major League Baseball. The Astros had their opening series. We've gotten to see them play a full four games now, um, and I've got a few thoughts. Just an opening weekend, you know, nothing major here, but a couple of takeaways I want to get into. That's next, right here on RP Three and Company. 6 6.37 on this Monday morning. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Once again, Dawson Iserloh in for RP3 here today as he travels back from uh, a very busy weekend in which he covered the LSU women win their first ever national championship. A reminder, we're going to be talking to RP3 in hour number three about that entire weekend. And we've got Jeff Palermo on tap in hour number two to discuss a little bit about the LSU women and also talk about that LSU baseball team that just keeps on winning series. Um, By by the way, the game hotline 337-706-0111. We'll try and get a couple of you in here throughout the show if you have some thoughts. I know it was a busy weekend, so um, we have that option as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the Astros right here. And, you know, opening weekend, always a fun time in Major League Baseball. You know, uh, Kevin Foot and I, of course, are going to talk more about the Astros on footnotes coming up um, at 9 o'clock. But, you know, I thought it was a really well-played baseball series between the Astros and the White Sox. And, you know, the White Sox are a team that, look, I was down on coming into the season. I talked about that in our Major League Baseball preview show with RP3 last week. Um, you know, felt like a team to me that was kind of on the cusp of doing something and things didn't really come together. And I thought maybe they were going to actually take a step uh, backwards, maybe some regression this year. Um, I'm not sure, you know, again, it's one weekend, I can't take too much from it, but they looked a lot better than I thought they were going to look. And right now their' you know, their talented star-studded lineup is healthy, which hasn't always been the case. Um, but that's maybe one of my bigger takeaways from the weekend. And, and I actually talked, Kevin Foote and I were covering the uh, Cajun baseball game yesterday. So we were up in the press box there and we were kind of talking about it. If Eloy Jimenez and, you know, Luis Robert and Tim Anderson and those guys all stay healthy, their lineup is still really, really good. And I think maybe that's where kind of some of my feelings of regression came from, is that I thought, you know, I just haven't seen those guys stay healthy, right? Eloy's been you know, injured. Tim Anderson's been kind of the mainstay there, and he's had some pretty good health recently. But a lot of those other guys have missed a lot of games, and I just didn't trust them to stay healthy. I also thought the pitching rotation was going to maybe take a step back, was, was wondering if Lance Lynn could pitch at a high level. And look, none of those questions were fully answered in one weekend of baseball, so I'm not suggesting that they were, but... Um, something Foot and I talked about, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hit on again later on, is that it feels like the White Sox played about as well as you can play in a series. And for the Astros to have still come away with a split, I think you got to be pretty satisfied with that. And so I thought Houston, you know, opening day game was a great pitcher's duel, and it was a classic opening day game. But one of my big takeaways was basically how kind of competitive the at-bats were late in the game. I love to see that. I love to see competitive at-bats, fouling pitches off, you know not just being blown away by a closer stuff and I thought they were really good in that game at doing that it didn't quite get them the results. Jordan hits the big homer to get them within one but then they lose by a run. Um but then look, they come back Friday and Saturday and win close competitive ball games but the offense kind of came to life. Um yesterday was a tough loss. You kind of came back to the crowd a little bit offensively, but the other thing is through a weekend, you know, and you're always kind of concerned with Altuve and Brantley out, who's going to pick it up offensively? Well, all your mainstay type guys, right? Jose Abreu was a big signing. He went 6 for 16 over the weekend. He's hitting 375. Uh Jeremy Peña was 4 for 8, 4 for 15, so not a great weekend, but pretty solid. Yordan is already hitting 455 with a homer. Um, you know, Kyle Tucker had a solid weekend. Now, Alex Bregman's over 16, but Alex Bregman is always slow slow to start in April. Um, and that, you know, is nothing new, so you know, with some guys again, you it wouldn't be time to panic for anybody hitting, you know, through four games. But Alex Bregman's a guy you're worried even less because we know he starts slow, but we know he's going to come around. That's just who Bregman is. So, offensively, I don't have many concerns. Um, you know, and Look, the bottom, Who's the fill-in guys, did they struggle? Some of them, certainly. But Chaz McCormick, who many people think should have been starting from day one, he had a nice little two-for-five weekend when he was in there. I'd expect to see McCormick in the lineup much more this week. I would expect him to get a few more starts. Um, And so, you know, from that perspective, not concerned at all with what I saw. I actually encouraged. And um, I know a 2-2 and record isn't going to necessarily give everybody around the Acadiana to Houston area cause for excitement, but I thought it was a well-played baseball series on both ends. I thought both teams, and, you know, in an opening series, sometimes you're expecting a little bit of rust, uh, you know, in certain areas. I didn't see a ton, really. I thought both teams played very well, and um, I'm excited to see what's going to take place this week for the Astros. You know, pitching-wise, obviously one start in for all of your main guys, or at least your four at the top. Um, Nobody was outstanding even Framber you know he pitched he got good results and that he didn't give up a run but he was uh kind of dancing he wasn't sharp you know then you had Luis Garcia gave up seven hits and three runs in five innings Javier gave up eight hits and three runs in five innings Urquidy gave up uh three runs on seven hits in four innings so like all kind of had that same type of thing but that to me feels all like guys who just weren't quite as sharp as they'd like to be on their opening start but are going to get better And the fact that they were able to scramble some hits around and kind of, you know, pitch out of danger at times. I think the pitching, the starting pitching is going to be fine. Um, The bullpen, look, Ryan Presley was pretty bad in his, you know, one inning of work. That's, again, one inning of work. I'm not really all that concerned. Now, one of my main, main concerns with this team in general is kind of the middle, the middle to back end of that bullpen. Can Phil Maton be as effective as he was a year ago? You know, what do you get from Brian Abreu and Rafael Montero? Seth Martinez, who we saw pitch three innings over the weekend. Like, what are you getting from those guys? And even Hector Neris, right? But um, not, not, not overly concerned with anything that I saw from the Astros this weekend. And um, I think that's something that, as we progress through this season, you know, the AL West is kind of a different landscape than what it's been in the past. For the first time in a long time, It really kind of feels like, you know, the AL West might have some other contenders than the Astros. It doesn't feel like they could, you know, in past years, it's kind of felt like, look, even if they only win 85 games, they're going to win the division. That doesn't feel like it's the case anymore. And I think we saw a little bit of that this week. Look, the Angels, they dropped the game hilariously to the A's on opening day, which I've been an Angels supporter on this show. I have to kind of stick up for Mike Trout when Kevin Foote starts talking about Mike Trout, so... You'll continue to hear that throughout the season, but the Angels did bounce back and win two out of three in that series. The Rangers swept the Phillies, and I mean, you know, look, RP3's been telling me he thinks the Rangers are going to be really good. I was kind of hesitant. I thought, yeah, they're good, but I don't know if they take that next step. Well, they went 3-0, and and Jacob deGrom looked horrible in his first start. So that feels like maybe that's going to be a team that, to look out for. Now, Seattle actually ends up losing three out of four in their series, so, you know, they're a team that I think, is the main contender to the Astros, and we will see, Um, but not exactly a hot start for them. But overall, my point being, I think there's four teams in the AL West that could win the division. Like I say could, I mean have a chance. I don't mean I think are going to. um, Of course, only one team's going to win the division, but I mean I don't think there's a team that I'm like deathly afraid of catching the Astros and winning the division But, I mean, look, if you tell me the Angels are going to figure things out, if they get enough from their starting rotation and a couple of guys in that lineup that we're not expecting a ton from produce for them, let's remember they have the two best baseball players on the planet, okay? So if that happens and the Angels make a run, I can see a scenario in which that happens. The Rangers have spent so much money and just have, you know, definitely improved, and they have, when he's healthy and right, the best pitcher in baseball and Jacob DeGrom, so you could see them making a run. And of course, Seattle is everybody's favorite young team that's up and coming. And I like I like a lot of the guys in the back end of their rotation. I want to. I, I'm thinking George Kirby has a big year. Um, and so the Mariners, of course, you wouldn't be surprised if they make a run and challenge the Astros. Now, with all that being said, Houston's still the favorite in my mind, and that's not going to change until they don't win it. You know what I mean? Like maybe okay, if if the Astros, if something catastrophic happens and they're below 500 at the All Star break, then we could start talking then as well. But like. If this is a close race and we get to September, I just feel like the Astros are going to make a push to win the division as they always do. Uh, That's just my feeling. You know, let's remember there were a couple of years throughout this dominant stretch where the A's were hanging around and had division leads at different points. And, you know, we've seen that. But in the end, Dusty Baker's team, and of course it was, you know, even before Dusty Baker's time here as manager, they've gotten these things done. And um, I expect the Astros to be right there come the end of the season. So that's some of my takeaways from what was a busy opening weekend in Major League Baseball, and uh, we of course will have a lot more on that as time goes on. We got to take a timeout, but when we return, we are going to kind of introduce our poll question of the day. It of course has to do with the LSU women winning the national title. Uh, We will talk about that next on RP3 and Company.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station.
1: Poll question of the day as we're back here on RP3 and company. Dawson Izerloh once again in for RP3, who is traveling back after covering the LSU Women's National Championship victory yesterday in Dallas. And the poll question is all about Kim Mulkey's team. What was the biggest factor in LSU's win over Iowa? The choices Jasmine Carson's three-pointers. I mean, again, Jasmine Carson, I I touched on this a little bit in the open, but Jasmine Carson, who is a player that, look, has certainly been good at times this season. I mean, she has had big games before. But the senior, who's a 35% three-point shooter, one of the better three-point shooters on this team, but not at this level to where she shoots five of six from three and scores 22 points off the bench in 22 minutes. I mean, she was unbelievable, and especially in that first half. So that's your first option, Jasmine Carson's three-pointers. Alexis Morris, 12 points in the fourth quarter. Your senior leader kind of showed up when she needed to. Uh, Was it holding Caitlin Clark under 40? Tremendous talent and uh, maybe the face of women's college basketball moving forward. Um, Now, Angel Reese will certainly have something to say about that, but I think those two kind of... A little bit of a rivalry there could only be good for the sport. So was it holding Clark under 40? Or was it managing the foul trouble? And the reason I added that in as an answer choice is because, again, early on in this game, fouls were being called both ways at a high rate. And you saw Alexis Morris and Angel Reese pick up a couple of fouls, and it kind of changed the way the game was played a little bit. And Iowa had to do the same with Caitlin Clark picking up fouls and some of their big girls in the middle. Had a couple of fouls early on, so I felt like that changed the game. Um, but which one of those was it? Right now, 61% of you saying Carson's three pointers. 24% say Alexis Morris with her 12 points in the fourth. 9% have it at Caitlin Clark under 40 points, which I, you know I thought that was going to get more of the uh, more of the answers this morning. And then 6% say managing foul trouble. A couple of comments. Ton says all were equally important, IMO, in my opinion. But if I have to choose one, holding Clark under 40. Shut her down, shut the team down. Bonus for throwing her celly back in her face. Um, Yeah, so I did want to mention that briefly. There's a lot of people very upset about this. A lot of people very happy about it. Um, Essentially, what happened was a couple of rounds ago against Louisville, um, Caitlin Clark kind of did the John Cena, you can't see me move um, in a timeout type situation after she had hit a big shot. And so what Angel Reese did was when this game was kind of in the waning seconds and was going to be a win, she kind of threw that back at Caitlin Clark kind of was doing the no, you know, the John Cena, you can't see me, um, flashing the hand in front of the face move. And, you know, look, I don't have a major problem with it. I did think it was a little bit, you know, and again, the main reason is that Caitlin Clark did do this first. Now it wasn't at Angel Reese. And that's what a lot of people are upset about that. She then did it, um, you know, retrospectively or or however you want to think of it. But, and I did think it was a little bit more personal. That's the only thing I didn't like about it, is that she kind of followed her around for a few seconds doing it. You know, it wasn't like she made her point and then moved on. Um, but, look, you, you're you're dealing with the emotions of winning a national championship, doing something that you've always dreamed of and stuff. And so, you know, look, I, I think, again, we're always too critical of college-age athletes and, um, you know, even professional athletes, but specifically college you know student athletes that they are. So I'm not going to, you know, harp on it today. I did want to mention it, though, because a lot of people are talking about it. So, you know, that was something that took place at the end of that game. And, you know, she had a you know, pretty good explanation for it in the postgame press conference. kind of, you know, the mentality there and kind of what the motivation behind it was. And Caitlin Clark, you know, for to her credit, didn't really seem bothered by it all that much. Kind of said, look, you know, and, and kind of she knows that she does a lot of trash talking. And that's the other thing that I kind of mainly had about it. Caitlin Clark has done plenty of kind of trash-talking and showboating herself. So it's it's not a situation where she's just this player who doesn't ever say anything, and that was done to her. So anyway, that's kind of what my thoughts were. Steve says, the coach wearing the outlandish outfits, without Kim Mulkey, none of this would be possible. That's certainly the case. Um, who Forever says, social media is in their feelings about Angel Reese. They big mad, shares a GIF of, I love it, let's go. And yeah, no, that's certainly the case. Social media today um, is certainly... Uh, it's a polarizing subject, one way or the other. Ralph says, definitely all-important, but that spark Carson provided was fire. Still can't believe this happened in year two, but kudos to Coach Mulkey. The transfer portal has really changed everything in college sports. That's going to gonna, gonna be some parade in red stick, and it certainly will be. And uh, I agree. The transfer portal has changed everything, and Kim Mulkey has been better than maybe anyone in women's college basketball of adapting to that. Hour number one in the books, hour number two coming up. We'll have Jeff Palermo on and more on RP3 and Company.
0: Everything, everything gonna be alright this morning Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper <laughs> Lafayette Here is producer Dawson Izerlowe and your big, bald, beautiful host Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3
1: It is the producer Dawson Izerlowe, but the big, bald, and beautiful one is not Here this morning as we've been talking about RP3 traveling back from Dallas. But we will hear from him. Fear not. We will, of course, get RP3's take on the LSU Women's National Championship. Coming up in hour number three. We covered a lot in hour number one. Of course, we led off the show with Kim Mulkey's team and kind of what they were able to accomplish. The first national championship for them in school history. We also talked about the New Orleans Pelicans. They're back. They are in very much in the race to not only make the playing tournament, maybe get out of the playing tournament and just be a playoff team, period, which I think would be extremely exciting for New Orleans basketball. Uh, we also talked about the Houston Astros and kind of you know, uh, an interesting opening weekend in which they split four games, but uh, I had more positives to take away than negatives, certainly in that series. Um, and we introduced... Our poll question of the day, which is what was the biggest factor in LSU's win over Iowa? We got some interesting choices for you there on Twitter and on Facebook, so go ahead and check that out and make sure to vote and leave a comment. The game hotline is 337 706 0111. If you'd like to get in and have any comments uh, on what we've talked about already, and we've got a lot more lined up here. In hour number two, we're going to talk with Jeff Palermo, get his take on the LSU women's national title, and also. Talk to him about that LSU baseball team that just seemingly continues to pass every test as they continue to play top level SEC competition and just win series. So we'll talk to him there. Um, but I want to start this hour talking about Cajun baseball. And, you know, we will speak with uh, Matt Deggs coming up to start Footnotes uh, at 9 o'clock. So we'll get to hear his perspective on what was a, a disappointing weekend, I'm sure, for the Cajuns. But they did salvage a game yesterday, six to nothing, a very well-played baseball game. And and I was at that one covering it, and you know, I think that's kind of where I'd like to start because Cooper Rawls was just outstanding yesterday. And if Cooper Rawls is going to give the Cajuns what he gave them, and look, he's been outstanding all year. Now that yesterday was his first start, but he's been great out of the bullpen the entire season. And so if Cooper Rawls is going to give them what he gave them yesterday, he might work his way into a Sunday starting role, first of all. And we asked Coach Deggs afterwards, and he was a little noncommittal. He said he's so valuable in the role he's in as a long reliever. But he said maybe in a short week we'll get him in there. But look, if he continues to pitch the way he has pitched, I don't know if you can keep him out of the rotation. And so I think that'll be interesting to see um, how Rawls looks now. You know, This is a, an interesting another week in which they'll, they'll face Tulane on Tuesday. In a midweek contest, they've of course got conference, they're in the middle of conference play. And so, you know, you're going to see a lot of arms this week. As You you had that rare week without a midweek game last week, which Coach Deggs hates, by the way. He likes playing every day. He likes the major league setup, you know. Um, But you're going to have a week in which you just finished a series yesterday. You're going to play on Tuesday against Tulane. And then, of course, you're going to be playing on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in West Virginia against Marshall. That series, of course, with Easter being on Sunday, they're going to move that up a day, and you'll play the Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We see that more often with LSU. The SEC just kind of does it regularly. They have a series or two that starts on Thursday just to kind of mix things up. I think they like kind of getting that extra TV audience on a Thursday. Um, But the Cajuns only really do it for the Easter weekend, and then we'll see it sometimes at the end of the regular season. But a short week, and um, you you might see some shakeups in the rotation that way. Um, because typically a lot of college coaches like to keep guys on their scheduled day. Your Friday starter and Jake Hammond, um, I would expect to start on Friday, and you'll use someone else on Thursday as opposed to moving Hammond up a day. Now, he's a day off schedule, right, because pitching is so, you know, it is so routine-based, right, and so you don't want to move him up. Then you're moving your Saturday guy up to Friday, and you're moving, you know, so a lot of those moving parts, a lot of times you just say, okay, maybe we'll throw a bullpen game on Thursday, and then we'll just have our regular Friday night guy go on Friday night and our regular Saturday starter go on Saturday. So that's what I would expect. Um, you, you might see Cooper Rawls. Now, at the, you know, he did throw 89 pitches yesterday, so for him to come back on a Thursday would certainly be short rest. So maybe you see him as an opener for a few innings, um, and then I would expect to see Jake Hammond on Friday and Jackson Neza on Saturday, assuming everybody is good to go. But App State, look, this is a team that really came in. We knew they could score a ton of runs. They had scored a ton of runs all season long. But you know, they their approach at the plate too. They just really know how to handle the bat, and we saw that throughout this series. Friday night's game, you know, look, Jake Hammond didn't have his best his best stuff. Um, I think that was evident, but. You know they've got some guys. Look, Luke drummler has been there for what feels like forever at App State. He's been a mainstay in their lineup. They got a couple of guys who can just really swing it. And I thought, you know, it wasn't like the Cajuns were overwhelmed in this series at all. They were in every game. Um, and you know, the, the the funny thing about Friday or uh, yeah Friday's game is that they actually end up only giving up three runs. But you know, App jumped on them early. Got a run in the first. Hammond really, again, he settled down, and he ends up giving up a couple more runs in the third. He goes three and two-thirds, but then you had Ben Tate come out of the bullpen and just look lights out. So, he goes four and two-thirds, one hit, no runs. You know, Coach Deggs does keep hinting at him being a starter, and I think maybe he becomes the Sunday guy at some point this season. That'll be interesting to see. Maybe he's more of a candidate to start on Thursday as well, but um, offensively, the Cajuns just didn't quite get things going, and... You know, they were facing a pitching staff that had an ERA up over seven coming in, but they didn't look like it. (laughs) And we saw Xander Hamilton struck out 13 in six innings of work. So, you know, that caught me off guard a little bit, just how, you know, the Cajuns weren't able to match um, App State offensively. Um, Game two was uh, the biggest offensive outburst for the Mountaineers. And, you know, it it was a game that kind of went back and forth, but the Cajuns were kind of playing catch up. They lose it eight to five. They did have the bases loaded in the ninth. Julian Brock had a chance to maybe win it. He pops up on the first pitch and you end up not winning that game. But, you know, it was a well played game, I thought. And the Cajuns offense kind of came to life at times. They just weren't consistent enough. But then on Sunday, what you saw, A, is a pitcher come out, like I said, and Cooper Rawls just shoved. I mean, he was fantastic and you needed it. When your pitching staff is maybe dealing with you know, uh, an offensive team that you know can get after it. Now, look, the wind was blowing in, as it does so often at the Teague, and Cooper Rawls is a pitch-to-contact guy. It's a perfect type of day for him to be on the mound. Wind's blowing in. It's going to be really hard to get a ball out of here, um, and he's able to you know, induce a lot of fly ball outs, a lot of ground ball outs, and I just thought he was really, really good. And then he turns it over to Blake McGehee It was great to see McGehee back in action. Of course, McGee, has missed some time with injury this season. It was only his third appearance, his first out of the bullpen, and he gave you some length there to kind of get you to the end where Brendan Moody comes in and shuts the door, rolls a double play ball right away with the bases loaded, uh, or, with, or with first and second, rather, and he was just, you know, that was a huge situation to get out of, I thought. It, it was a six-run lead, but as Coach Deck said afterwards, like, he didn't trust a six-run lead against that team, um, and I don't blame him. They can swing it, and they can score runs in bunches, so... It was, uh, it was a way to kind of salvage something out of a disappointing weekend overall, but let's also remember App State's at the top of the Sunbelt standings as well right now. It's not like this is a bottom feeder team, and App is going to win a lot of series simply on the fact that they're going to outslug teams. Now, if their pitching pitches the way it did against the Cajuns this weekend, they're really going to win a lot of games. Um, but when you take a look at what's happened through three weekends, ODU and Coastal are both 7-2, and two, and... Foot and I were talking about this yesterday. We feel like that's the two teams that have kind of separated themselves a little bit from the pack. Now, their record says that as well, but we also just kind of think the way they play Coastal, you're talking about scoring runs. Coastal's maybe even better offensively than App State. They will score a million runs on you. And so those two teams, we feel, are, are really right there. Then the next tier, you have two teams at 6-3, and three, and that's Louisiana and App State. And, I mean, look, I think the Cajuns have some things to figure out, but I think they can be right there. I don't think I would rule out any situation in which they have a chance to win this conference. And then the next tier is the really interesting ones, because that's where you have the three teams that were getting so much hype going into the season. That's Texas State, Southern Miss, and Georgia Southern. And Texas State, of course, hosted a regional last year, and uh, Southern Miss did as well. And those teams kind of came in with all the expectations, but all three of those teams are just 5-4. and four. Georgia Southern, of course, was a team whose RPI was extremely high last year. The Cajuns ended up beating in the Sun Belt tournament, right? But, you know, those teams have kind of underachieved a little bit, but they're also the teams that you figure can get hot at any moment. Now, Georgia Southern's overall record is only 14-14, and 14, but they did play a brutal non-conference schedule, and their RPI kind of reflects that. Their RPI is still in a pretty good spot. So here's the thing with the Sun Belt. You're sitting there with... Seven teams above 500 in conference play, and I think they're the seven teams that you maybe would expect. Maybe not App State. They're kind of the ones that jumped up there and have played better than we thought, but that's kind of your group, and we certainly thought maybe South Alabama would be better than they are. They're three and six, though, Um, but they just got their first series victory, so maybe they're kind of trying to turn a corner here. JMU was the team that we didn't know a ton about just from being, uh, you know, not being a Sunbelt team. Now their first year in the league. Uh, they're three and four, so they're trying to figure things out as well. Now, the interesting group: Troy, Marshall, and Georgia State are all four and five, and I, I just don't know. I haven't seen a ton of these teams. We'll get a chance to look at Marshall this weekend when they play the Cajuns. But um, I wonder if any of those three can kind of jump up and be contenders. But really, I think you've got a clear cut top seven and bottom seven. And it's funny that you know it doesn't always work out like that. Um, and you know the teams that you would consider to be the best seven certainly aren't always going to be one through seven in the standings. But at least early on in conference play, I think that's what you have in the Sun Belt. So I think it's going to be an exciting time. I, You know, look, the RPI numbers where they are, there's a ton of teams in the top 100 for the Sun Belt, but there's not a ton of teams like in the top 30 or top 40. So you're going to need maybe that to change around. But I hope this conference is able to put three or four teams in the tournament again because that's something that's that's just really valuable. When you don't have to go to that conference tournament knowing you have to win it, when you feel like, hey, we're probably going to be in regardless – that's a valuable thing as a pro and a valuable place to be as a program. And that's where softball's been for a long time. No one else in the Sunbelt can really say that. But the soft the Cajun softball team goes into that Sunbelt conference tournament every year going, We're gonna win this thing. Like, don't get me wrong. Our goal isn't to win it. But we don't have to feel like, you know, if we lose a game in this tournament or if we lose this tournament, we know our season's not over. And so, you know, I think that's really that's that's something that's very valuable. And so the Cajuns I don't know exactly how it's going to be. They're going to have to do some work on their RPI. Um, You know, last I checked, they were in the 70s. Um, And so, you know, they're not there right now. But the good news is, again, you're going to play a lot of top 100 teams in conference play. So you're not going to have that. It's been in the past where it's like, well, the Cajuns have to get their RPI as high as they can because we know once conference play happens, they're going to drop down the rankings. That's not necessarily the case anymore um, in baseball or softball. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about softball later on. They they went to James Madison, and I thought that was a very impressive series. So we'll discuss that a little bit later on. But for right now, we got to take a timeout. Um, but when we come back, the men's Final Four, we haven't even touched on it. We're all more than an hour in. They will crown a champion tonight on the men's side. There was some outstanding basketball in the Final Four on the men's side. Um, and I have some thoughts on that matchup and kind of people – who said they weren't going to watch it. I have a feeling maybe they ended up tuning in anyway. That's all next right here on RP3 and Company.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 103.7 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Great news, my sports-loving friend. No more aimlessly searching for sports talk love by swiping left or right. Because you've already found the perfect match. For sports talk love, that is. I'm ready for love. Now, back to the only lover you'll ever need the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: Well, welcome back to RP3 and Company. Dawson Iserlo in for RP3 today as he travels back from Dallas and the women's Final Four. Now, while the women were playing over in Dallas, just just down the road in Houston, we had the men's Final Four take place. And the men's Final Four this year was kind of met with a whole lot of conversation about blue bloods and, um, you know, brand names and ratings and everything about this isn't going to be entertaining and the ticket prices are going to be low and nobody wants to watch these teams. And look, I'm someone who supports mid-major programs, group of five programs, the non-powerful brands of college athletics more than probably anyone you'll ever hear on the radio. Um, but like my take on this was... Why would you not want to see San Diego State and Florida Atlantic play? You, you get a chance to see Duke and Villanova and North Carolina and Kansas, and the list goes on. You get a chance to see those teams in the Final Four all the time. You got a chance to see an almost all-blue-blood Final Four last year, and you're going to get to see it again. You know what I mean? But Florida Atlantic, you're probably never going to see them in the Final Four again. So why would you not want to have that, you know, wow, this is, this is cool, this is something new that we're never going to see again? Two group of five, you know, mid-major, whatever the term you want to use. I know the Mountain West isn't quite a mid-major in basketball, but it, it, traditionally they still are. And also my message after the game that took place is if you didn't watch that game because there weren't any blue buds in it, then I'm sorry you missed it. Because it was one of the best basketball games I saw all se- It might have been the best college basketball game I saw all season. I think it was. And it had it all. I mean, it had... You know, there's another thing I hear sometimes people start talking about the level of play, high-level basketball, and, and whether it's, you know, good defense being played or good offense. This was just, I thought, entertaining basketball. Whether you want to say it was high-level basketball or whether you thought there was mistakes being made all over the place, I, I thought it was fantastic to watch. And so, again, if that was something that you weren't interested in and you just didn't tune in because there wasn't the right name on the jersey... And I don't. I guess I don't have anything for you. I guess I guess you spent your Saturday better than I did in your mind. But um, I I just can't. I can't stress enough how great that was for me. For me to be able to see those two teams go at it. Um, I was kind of rooting for Florida Atlantic just because they're a little bit more of the Cinderella story than San Diego State is. Um, they were the nine seed. They were under in my opinion. You know, they kind of came out of nowhere a little bit more. So San Diego State's been a very good program for a long time now. Um, now, they haven't obviously been on this level with this amount of success, and they haven't necessarily gotten it done in the tournament that much. But they have been a very good program that has been in the NCAA tournament often. So that was kind of where I was. But it, but at the end of the day, I was just rooting for a really good game, and that's exactly what I got. I mean, this was just it was so much fun, and it went back and forth the whole way. Um, You know, nobody ever. Now, the thing is, Florida Atlantic was kind of in control. They had a 12 point lead at one point in this game. But they it never felt like they could fully separate themselves. You know, it felt like they got leads and they were right there about to maybe close the door and they couldn't quite hit the big shot to kind of put it away. And San Diego State hung around. And then they started to cut into that lead. It was a nine point lead with about 11 minutes to go. Then San Diego State, Matt Bradley hit a big three. And from there, the Aztecs were right there the rest of the way. The lead kind of hovered, and they finally ran them down in the final minute. And, you know, in case you didn't see it, I'm sure you have by now, but Lamont Butler hit a shot. And the way I, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about this and describing it. There's a shot, you know, those of us who grew up playing basketball in the front yard the way I did, there's a shot you always talk about hitting, and it's this shot. You know, you're in your front yard, you're kind of maybe you're playing against your neighbor or you're playing by yourself, and you're kind of telling yourself, all right, clock's running down, five seconds on the clock, here we go. You make a move, you step back, you hit a jump shot, and, you know, you make the buzzer sound in your front yard as the shot goes through the net. That's the shot that Lamont Butler hit. To book a trip to the national championship game on Saturday. And it's like, it's one of those things that you just can't, you know, we talk all the time about sports. You just can't script stuff like this. By the way, did you see also there was an angle where he almost stepped out of bounds. I mean, his shoe was probably a half an inch away from stepping on the out of bounds marker right before he turns around and hits that game winning shot. I mean, it was incredible to watch, incredible theater, everything you really want in a basketball game, in a Final Four game, on the biggest stage, and, you know, the funny thing for me, like, even if this would have been a blowout in which San Diego State blew out FAU, it wouldn't have changed my opinion. I, I I can't stand we're so result-oriented. We do this with the college football playoff all the time. This team shouldn't have been in, this team shouldn't have been in, and then they lose a game by a couple of scores, and you go, oh, see, I told you this team shouldn't have been in the playoffs. We can't do that with results, especially in college football when we're trying to award in my opinion the teams that deserve to be there. Did this with Cincinnati against Alabama. I thought Cincinnati proved by every metric that they deserved to be there. And we've had teams that were, you know, quote-unquote name brands get blown out in the playoff all the time. So anyway, I got a little distracted there, but my point being, I didn't I didn't need this great game to think that this was a great Final 4 matchup. But boy, we got it. And San Diego State wins it, you know, Lamont Butler with uh, a shot that you you know, and the thing is, he only had nine points. They really relied on Bradley, who had a you know an outstanding game from the guard spot. Hit four of eight of his threes. He was big for them. He hit the again. I mentioned that three when they were down nine. That's the shot that really you started to say, okay, the Aztecs aren't going anywhere. They're in this ball game, um, and that was fantastic. Now. The nightcap wasn't as intriguing of a game once it actually took place. I still like the matchup. I think there's a lot of things going there. UConn, you know, a team that's had a ton of success in the past couple of decades, trying to get back to the point that they were. They're trying to get back to the national title game for the first time in about a decade. Um, a four seed that f- certainly doesn't feel like a four seed anymore. They're playing as good as anybody is. But remember, they lost in the Big East tournament. I think you know people kind of have you have this idea that they've just been dominant for so long, and in the tournament they have been. But the reason they weren't a one or a two seed is because they didn't play at that level all year, right? But Dan Hurley's team, they just kind of continue to dominate. And, you know, Miami was a good story uh, coming out of the ACC, which continues to have, you know, it seems like every year a team in the ACC makes a run to the Final Four, whether the ACC is really good or not that year. And Miami was that team this year, and Coach Jim Laranaga, he's a fun coach, you know, and Again, I got Florida State ties, uh, being an alum there, so we kind of we don't get along with Miami too well, but I I couldn't help but kind of like this Miami team, to tell you the truth. So don't tell anybody I said that, but they were fun to watch. Norchad O'Meara, a guy that I got to watch play in the Sun Belt and then take it to the next level. A lot of times we see guys at mid-major programs, sometimes it doesn't translate, sometimes it does, as far as getting to the next level and, and when you transfer out. and You're taking a chance, you're betting on yourself, essentially, going to one of those bigger schools. And for Norchad Omir, it was certainly the right call for him, and and he was outstanding all year long. Um, but in the end, it was just too much Sonogo. That guy's so good for UConn, and and I thought, you know, I thought UConn just has a couple of things that they do. Number one, they don't, you know. They don't force shots, too. That's another thing that I took away from this. They just, they look, they're, they're patient offensively when they have to be. They do get out in transition when they want to. They just kind of control the flow of the game, and they've been doing it all tournament. To hold that Miami team under 60 points with how well Miami had been playing in this tournament, um, I think that just kind of goes to show you where they're at right now. Miami had scored in their last three games. Now, the first tournament game against Drake kind of got muddied up, but they had scored 85 against Indiana, 89 against Houston, one of the best defensive teams in the country. And 88 against Texas. And UConn said, that's cool. Try scoring on us. And Miami gets held to 59 points. And so, you know, I thought UConn, look, they're the, they're the most dominant team in this tournament. It's been that way for a while now. And, you know, we're going to preview that championship game a little later in the show. I'm going to kind of give some perspective. I've, I've done a little bit of digging on these two teams. And, of course, we've gotten a chance to see them play a lot in the past month. Um, So I'll give some thoughts on that, but it's just hard to argue with how well UConn's playing right now, and um, you know that's going to be something that's... But either way, I think it's going to be intriguing, and San Diego State, kind of the team that's never been here before, trying to make history against UConn, the team that's trying to get back to where they've been in the past, and that's being a dominant program in college basketball. Um, So we will certainly talk about that a little bit more later on in the show we could to take a timeout, but coming up next, we're going to speak with Jeff Palermo and kind of get his perspective. Um, we'll ask him a little bit about the LSU women, but also I want to hear from him about LSU baseball because it was, a, it was a fun series over the weekend, and they kind of continue to be building towards something special here under Jay Johnson. So we'll get his perspective next right here on RP3 and Company. Welcome back to a Monday edition of RP3 and Company. Dawson Isolo in for RP3 today as he travels back from Dallas covering the women's Final Four. Of course, LSU taking home the national championship. And it'll get a little bit more about that as well as talk about that LSU baseball team. It's Jeff Palermo of the Louisiana Radio Network. Jeff, good morning to you and how are you?
2: Oh, I'm doing well. Doing well. Always love coming on the air to talk about uh, an LSU team winning a national championship. Now, 50 uh, national championships in LSU's athletic history.
1: Well, yeah, and, it, it, you know, it's certainly that's where we'll start. Uh, Kim Mulkey's team came into this season with expectations, but not these expectations. And, you know, even into the tournament, it felt like, you know, making it through a couple of rounds would probably be a success. Then some chips fell in the right spots and all of a sudden they were playing deep into this tournament and they didn't even have to play South Carolina. So, you know, kind of take us a step back here and and what do you think of this overall run they put together?
2: Well, yeah, even if you go back to uh, Selection Sunday when LSU found out that it had uh, had the third seed, I mean, Kim Mulkey was talking about the minimum goal was to just at least win one more game than they did last year. Of course, last season, they got knocked out in the second round. So the goal was to at least get through the second round, playing a sweet 16 game. And that, uh, if the season ended in the uh, sweet 16, then that was a, that was a nice season. That was a good season. They, they took another step uh, in trying to rebuild this program. And, and I don't, I know Angel Reese talked about <laughs> in the post game about, you know, they were the only ones that could believe they could win this uh, national championship. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, you'd love to give some truth serum to Kim. I don't think she probably thought they could win a national championship. I mean, you go back to what she said after they lost to South Carolina, she said that basically South Carolina is the best team and it's going to be very hard to beat them and they probably will not lose. Uh, but, that's why we played a game. <laughs> right. That's why well, games are not played on paper. Uh, you're right. Some dominoes fell in their, in their way uh, where they were able to avoid the number one seed in their bracket, and they were able to avoid uh, having to play South Carolina in the Final Four. But I, I'll say this. This team was playing its best basketball at the right time. I mean, and then you, you probably saw, I, I know Iowa scored 85 points, but... I think you saw their best overall game of the season uh, yesterday, especially offensive-wise. The, to see five players scoring double figures like they did, everyone stepping up, and then you know leading into this game, I mean how well this team really played defensively. Uh, they just suffocated opponents. They never gave their opponents a chance, and uh, even in this game, they were physical with Iowa and it frustrated them and Iowa knew it was coming. They knew that they were going to get a physical style of basketball, but they still weren't ready for it.
1: Well, and that's the funny thing. We've talked, you know, we've we've talked to you about this and and we've we've mentioned it all year. It's like who's going to step up to help Angel and Alexis because so many times this year, even in games they were winning, it felt like they were carrying the load. But then all of a sudden, and it's funny how sometimes things work out in their biggest game, Angel Reese only has 15 points and yet Kaitlyn Clark does go for more than 30, and you still win this game handedly. But Jasmine Carson and some of those names that we were saying, yeah, some of them give you a good night here and there, but it just felt like everybody maybe had their best game of the season except Angel in the championship game.
2: Yeah, you're probably right. And I tell you what, uh, the first bucket of the game, I kind of felt like that set the tone. You know, Flaw J. Johnson hits that three-pointer in the corner, and for the freshman to step up and knock that shot down – I think gave the team a, a a bit of a boost. Okay, this you know this is how today is going to go. Everyone is going to have a hand in this game. And if you've watched LSU during the season, they really do if Angel really does in the first quarter kind of take a step back and she doesn't come out and really start to try to to dominate the game, uh she lets her other teammates to get involved, but then if if they're struggling to get involved, uh, she's able to, you know, step up her game and, and help. And there's also been plenty of games where Alexis Morris really didn't do much in the first half, but in the second half, uh, she's scoring the basketball at a at a higher clip. Uh, but yeah, Jasmine Carson, that first half she had was just absolutely insane. And that three-pointer she banks in at halftime, I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me to have that kind of game? And then – the, the second time in this tournament, Ladeisha Williams really steps up when Angel Reese is in foul trouble and gives you you know 20 points. I mean that's just absolutely huge. They they really they they really played as a as a complete team and they might not have been the best team all season long, but they certainly were the best team in in the month of March and obviously uh, on April 2nd as well.
1: Well, we go from one team that wins a title, maybe unexpectedly, and didn't have the title expectations, to a team in Jay Johnson's group that does have title expectations, and they've begun to get tested. We kind of talked about the non-conference schedule. Well, here we are in SEC play, and they're still winning series. Um, I thought it was a really competitive, fun series with Tennessee. That's a team that's kind of become the villains of college baseball a little bit. And, you know, it's not to say it was a dominant series for LSU, but they win yet another series, and they're still, again, winning conference series against top ten opponents can't ever be a negative thing.
2: No, it can't be. And, yeah, it was really disappointing to get down 10 to nothing in the second inning. I mean, that's just – that's uh, no way to do it. I, I don't know the issues exactly what Thatcher heard yesterday. I think – I think it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, that's if you want to point to the weak spot here, you know, is, you know, how good can Ty Floyd and Thatcher Hurd be to really give you that dominant weekend rotation? Uh, you know, they don't have to go out there and be Paul Skeens. I, I think Ty Floyd is certainly doing his part. Uh, it wasn't his best outing on Friday, but he, he gave you, he gave LSU the opportunity to win that game and LSU, and then I thought the bullpen was great on, on Saturday. And I think what you saw this weekend were a couple things you have yet to see from this team. Uh, on Friday, you saw this team win a, a back-and-forth affair. You know, they get down one nothing. It's 2-1, 2-2. It's late in the ballgame. Uh, Tennessee commits an error. Uh, when it looks like we're going to go to the ninth inning tied at 2 instead, after the LSU is able to load the bases. Can you get the clutch hit? Well, you get the clutch hit from Jordan Thompson. You win that ball game. Uh, they went another way on, Saturday, on Friday that we have yet to see them win this year, uh, where they get a lead in the middle of innings, and then the bullpen comes in and shuts the door. We have not really seen that. I mean, Most of the victories we've seen this season is LSU scoring 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 runs and winning by run rule uh and then even yesterday to, to be down 10 to nothing and to get back within 10 to 6 and actually have an opportunity to make that game even closer than it was or I should say Saturday uh to me is a testament of just how dangerous the lineup is so uh yeah they uh they we we pointed to these first 3 SEC series as this was going to be we're going to get a better idea of just how good this team is I, going 6 and 3 I think is fantastic and then all of a sudden when you just thought maybe uh, prior to the start of SEC play that you get a little bit of a breather this weekend by playing South Carolina the Gamecocks are 8 and 1 in league play so <laughs> it, it the, the tough road continues here for LSU but uh, you love to see this team get tested because they're they're talented enough to to handle it for sure
1: well, yeah, and, and even after that, they got another 8-1 and one Kentucky team. So the SEC just, I mean, it doesn't give you many breaks. Now, you know, maybe down the stretch when you play the Georgias and, you know, well, they actually, you know, they'll get a break eventually, right? But what do you want to see in these next two series when they go to South Carolina and then host Kentucky? Uh, is it as simple as just seeing Thatcher Hurd and Ty Floyd continue to give you reliable starts, maybe Hurd get back on track, or is there something with the bullpen you're looking to see? Where, where can this team still improve?
2: Well, yeah, I think you're looking for you know Thatcher Hurd to yeah you you don't you like you you hate to see that kind of an outing. I mean that could be. I mean let's face it. You, what if you're in the championship series of the uh, College World Series and you know Thatcher Hurd is, is pitching in the in the championship game and, and that's the the outing that you have. So that 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 can't happen. I, I think you'd like to see Christian Little kind of bounce back here a little bit. Um, You know, Chase Shores, I think, uh, you know, showed himself well uh, this weekend. He's had a couple of up and down uh, appearances here. I think this team is just offensively. They just it's they continue just to, to perform very well. So even when Jay Johnson makes some changes to the lineup, whoever he inserts there, they they seem to respond to it. So lineup-wise, uh, defensively they continue to play very well. I think it's just continuing to make sure that uh, you know these pitchers develop, and you you don't have outings like you did on Saturday because that that really was disappointing. I mean, you had you had a chance to to sweep Tennessee, and uh, you weren't able to do it because uh, your starting pitcher couldn't get an out, and that that's that that's frustrating. But uh, again, the the forty thousand foot look, the forty thousand foot Look, view of this is, is pretty spectacular as far as how good this team is and um, they'll, they'll continue to be the, the favorites to win the national championship until someone really knocks them out in the postseason if someone can
1: I'll get you out of here with this one, Jeff. Um, Dylan Cruz continues to just kind of put video game numbers on the board every week. He's still well over a five hundred batting average now almost 30 games into the season. Do you have some reservation about some of the things people have been saying about his rank all time at LSU and and kind of the potential for him. Do you need to see more from him, or is he legitimately already one of the top two or three players in the history of the team?
2: I think he's one of the top two or three players. I mean, what what can solidify that is him winning a national championship. But, you know, Alex Bregman, who you could put in there, is one of the top two or three position players all time. He never won a national championship. But what Dylan cruz is doing is just it's just been outstanding they they put him in center well they put him in the outfield uh his freshman season and he's he's looked apart uh this was a guy that had a lot of hype we heard about it uh very much like uh, an alex bregman when he came here uh, you knew he was going to be a great player and he's living up to it and it's just absolutely crazy that a guy this deep into the season could be hitting five forty three and it's not like he's you know, hitting ground balls that are just getting past infielders or hitting balls that are just finding space in the outfield. I mean, he's he's crushing balls. He's a tough out. You just feel when he's at the plate, it's must-watch TV because you feel like he's going to do something really good. And, um, I, yeah, I mean – Hey, if Bill Frank has, who's watched more LSU baseball than anybody else alive, <laughs> says he's the All best right. player, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, Bill Frank as the sports information director on that. I mean, he's he's as good as it gets. And uh, I think really the one thing that can uh, just solidify his place in LSU lore is is wrapping it up with a national championship this season.
1: All right, Jeff, well, an exciting weekend uh, for a lot of LSU athletics, and that will continue, and we will, of course, get your perspective next week once again on this LSU baseball team and uh, everything else that goes on. Thank you.
2: Thank you, sir. You have a good
0: one. This is RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey said that game listeners prefer our station than filing their taxes. Take that, taxes. This is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Dawson Angelo in for RP3 today as he returns from Dallas to cover the LSU women in the Final Four, winning their first ever national championship. Poll question of the day is, of course, about the Tigers. What was the biggest factor in LSU's win over Iowa? Was it Jasmine Carson's three-point shot? Well, the multiple of them. She made six of them in the first half. Was it Alexis Morris, 12 points in the fourth quarter? Was it holding Caitlin Clark under 40, which not too many teams were able to do in this NCAA tournament? Or was it managing the foul trouble? Right now, 70% are saying Jasmine Carson's three-pointers. They were huge, and that kind of gave them that lead heading into the halftime break that ended up being enough despite a couple of runs from Iowa. 18% say Morris, 12 points in the fourth. 8% say holding Clark under 40, and 4% say managing foul troubles. Darren... On Twitter says, hitting shots, they were 11 for 17 from 3. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. You know, and the funny thing is that, as I've been saying, if you looked at the the just the, some of these raw numbers without kind of seeing the way the game was played and said, here's your scenario. Angel Reese is only going to score 15 points. Caitlin Clark's going to have 30, and Iowa's going to have 85 as a team. You probably thought LSU lost by double digits. I think that's what that's what I would have guessed based on those numbers and yet no they win by double digits. They win by 17 because they made basically everything in the world in the first half. I mean they could have thrown it. and that banked in three at the end of the half was kind of one of those that's just such a gut punch to Iowa because it's indicative of how it was. It's like man right now this LSU team specifically Jasmine Carson, she could just throw it up carelessly and it's gonna go in right now um, and that's a that's a great place to be as a shooter to to have that feeling. And, um, you know, look, we're we're, kind of used to now the funny thing is Caitlin Clark's kind of used to being the one that we say, man, she just she could throw it up from anywhere. And look, she still was very good in this game. I think that's the funny thing. Like Caitlin Clark was actually still very effective and she still did show you. And I'm glad she did. She kind of showed the world for those who maybe hadn't watched her much until leading up into this game. Like She showed you why how exciting she is as a player. Uh, but at the same token, LSU kind of said, look, we see all that and we're aware of it. We're not worried about it. We're still going to beat them. And they did. So, you know, I did think, you know, the overarching thing, I think, about this this championship game, there was a lot of buzz around it. And that's not the case for the women's college basketball championship games of past, of you know, of past years. Certainly some of them have had more buzz than others. Um, you know, you've had some of the great dynasties and and... UConn, of course, winning all the games in a row that they did with Gino and he's still around and UConn was a factor in this tournament. They didn't make it to the end. But of course, you know, Pat Summit's team, some of those, you know, great runs had some publicity, but like this was maybe a turning point in the way that women's college basketball is viewed. Maybe it won't be. Maybe this will prove to be kind of a blip on the radar and it will go back to, you know, not being talked about much. But I think this has a chance to be kind of a turning point for the sport in general, and I think that is, uh, that is only a good thing. I, I, just, I just don't know why people sometimes want to gatekeep which sports are you know, the ones that get attention. If you're not into it and you don't enjoy it, that doesn't mean you have to watch it, right? But a lot of people, I think, maybe saw this game and said, oh, that's impressive. Like That's something I'm willing to tune in for. And, I mean, look, me personally, when Iowa's schedule comes out next year, I'm certainly going to make it a point to kind of see a few of those games during the regular season because I don't want to just see it on the biggest stage. I want to see what a Caitlin Clark, you know, Thursday night game in November against a non-conference opponent looks like. Can she do the same types of things or is this just something like, like I will be tuning in for that. So those types of things and as well, we'll have this LSU team that'll be right back in the mix again next year. They don't lose much. I mean, look, they lose Alexis Morris. That's going to be difficult, but they've also got a top recruiting class coming in and Angel Reese is going to be back. So Kim Mulkey's team, is not going anywhere anytime soon. That's it for hour number two. Hour number three coming up. I know you've been waiting for it. We're going to get the big, bald, and beautiful one on the hotline. That's right. We're going to talk to RP3 in hour number three. We're also going to cover a whole bunch of other subjects, touch on some of the things we've already talked about, preview the men's final four. That's all next, right here on RP3 and Company on the game.
3: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Everything, everything, everything going to be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Izerlowe and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. 8.03 on the
1: clock. Welcome into the third and final hour of RP3 and Company. Dawson Izerloh in for RP3 here on this Monday morning. And, you know, if you've been missing the wonderful voice of RP3, fear not. We're going to talk to him coming up in just about a half hour at 830. So we've covered a lot already. We covered, of course, the LSU women winning the national championship yesterday. We talked about the Houston Astros in an opening series where they split with the White Sox. Uh, talked about the New Orleans Pelicans. They are back. The who's back of the week is the New Orleans Pelicans. They are in contention to not only make the play-in tournament, but maybe just maybe sneak into the playoff picture without having to play in those extra tournament games that me and RP3 think are so dumb. Um, we also talked LSU baseball with Jeff Palermo, as well as the Women's National Championship, and we talked a little Cajuns baseball. The men's Final Four. We talked about the two games that took place on Saturday. San Diego State wins an absolute thriller over Florida Atlantic. And then UConn flexes once again in a dominant win over Miami. So that will be the matchup San Diego State will take on UConn tonight. The game hotline, remember, is 337-706-0111. If you got anything about one of those many topics we've covered, um, feel free to uh, get on and, and get your thoughts as long as you keep it clean for the kids, as RP3 would say. I do want to preview this this men's national title game a little bit here because, you know, I think it's one of those championship games that I don't think many people necessarily picked at all. There's certainly some people that were high on UConn heading into the tourney, and, you know, there were stretches during the season where UConn was the best or one of the best teams in the country. It just wasn't the entire season. But I think it's not shocking to see what they were able to do. But what I do think is surprising is just how dominant they've been. Like, I just don't think anybody could have, you know, seen that coming the way that they've done it. And, you know, some of the teams that they've beaten, like, they haven't had this, you know, miraculous path. They've certainly, you know, maybe they haven't played the best team possible in every matchup, but, like, they've played pretty good teams throughout this tournament, and they've just dominated them. So I don't think people necessarily saw that coming, even with some of the talented players and, you know, Coach Dan Hurley having those guys ready to go. Um, But I'll start here with San Diego State. And, you know, my main kind of point here is that this is not exactly a Cinderella story. Um, It's certainly going to be portrayed that way in some regards, and it has some of the qualities of a Cinderella story, but like this is not the equivalent of—it's certainly not anything like what St. Peter's did last year and making their run as a 15 seed that won their conference tournament. It's not even, in my opinion, quite equivalent to what it would have been if Florida Atlantic would have made the championship game as a 9 seed. Like San Diego State was a preseason top 25 team this season. They really—they were. And they actually had a couple of really close calls in non-conference play. If you'll remember way back to the Maui Invitational at the beginning of the season, they lost a game in Arkansas in overtime. They lost to Arkansas in overtime, 78-74, and then they followed that up with another tough loss in that tournament. And so, you know, I think maybe people, that was kind of the, that's another thing we do, right? When we don't really value mid-major conferences, they lose those couple of games and a lot of people not everyone because the mid, the Mountain West still got its respect from the committee and others this year but a lot of people said well i've seen enough of San Diego State they didn't beat any of the power 5 teams they played so let's move on and if you did move on from them then you missed what became one of the most consistently good teams during Mountain West play and you know i think that's something that people might not realize is that you know we we think of the mid major conferences as the one bid leagues and maybe you know every once in a while you'll get a two bid league in there The Mountain West this year put four teams in the tournament uh, and they've been doing that fairly consistently. Right. So, you know, this team in San Diego State went 15 and three in Mountain West play that had three other tournament teams in Utah State, Boise State, and Nevada, who were all 12 and six or better in conference play. They went 15 and three and won the league outright by two games. So, you know to sit here and be kind of shocked that they did what they did. Look, I am shocked they made it all the way to the championship game. I, I certainly didn't think that was going to be the case, but they won the Mountain West tournament. They were playing really good basketball. They were ranked 20th when they played that Mountain West championship game. So then they come into the tournament and they play a College of Charleston team. And look, I'll I'll be transparent here. I picked College of Charleston to beat them in the very first round. I thought Charleston was an underseeded twelve seed, which Hey, it kind of seems they turned out that that's probably pretty right. They lost a close game by six to San Diego State, who ended up being in the championship game of the whole thing. Um, but they get through that. Then they blow Furman out in the second round. And you sat there and said, well, here comes the end of the road for the Aztecs as they played the number 1 overall seed in the tournament, Alabama. And they didn't flinch. They win that game by seven. They move on and face Creighton, another kind of you know team that not a lot of people were talking about but was really, really good in the Big East, and they beat them by one. And then it it turns to the Florida Atlantic game. And, you know, what they did in the Final Four, just again, it was one of those shots that you dream about in the backyard. So they win that one by one, and now they get this matchup with UConn. So they have by no means been as dominant as UConn, and I don't necessarily think they have quite as much talent as UConn. But what they do have is a balanced approach. I did some kind of looking at the numbers, and I kind of focused on the tournament because, right, you know, what matters the most at this point is how you're playing right now. San Diego State does not have a player on their roster who has scored in double figures in every NCAA tournament game. And it's not like that's, you know, because, oh, well, they've blown teams out and had guys out of the game. That's not the case because, again, as we've mentioned, almost every game they've played has been close uh, with the exception of the Furman game. And even the Furman game was close for the first stretch. Like, it wasn't like it was from wire to wire that San Diego State dominated, right? So they don't have a guy who is the quote-unquote, you know, no doubt go-to score. That would that would kind of be my point there. But what they do have is a lot of different guys who can give you numbers. And on any given night, they have any, any of their five starters and even a couple of their guys off the bench can give you those types of numbers. Now the guys to really keep an eye on, Matt Bradley, is the guard who had 21 against Florida Atlantic. He can really shoot it from the outside and he's going to make a lot of their offense go. Of course, Lamont Butler hit the game winner. He had 9 points in that game, but he had 18 against Creighton, and he has had stretches where he can take over for you. Their third guard is Darian Tremell, and he's a guy who had 21 against Alabama. But again, has had some quieter games. Only had 5 against Charleston, only had 5 against Florida Atlantic. You know, and then inside it's it's interesting with Nathan Mensah. He's the 6'10" forward and he's kind of matchup dependent, but they're going to need they're going to need a lot from him defensively against Sunogo. I'd imagine he's going to get the assignment. Um, they're, of course, they're probably going to help him. Now he hasn't scored in double figures, but he's the rebounder and he's the. How about the block shots? He's had two, two, five, three, and one. He has blocked the shot in every game in this tournament. And then lastly, you've got Keshad Johnson, who is, you know, another guy in the. They don't ask their forwards to score a ton for him, um, but they do ask him to defend and rebound, and that's what those guys are going to do. So, you know, they're just a balanced team. And they get it from a lot of different sources. So, you know, I think that's going to be something to really watch out for. Who steps up? You'd imagine maybe it's going to be Bradley. Maybe it's going to be Butler. Because those are kind of the guys that we've seen the most from. But it really could be anybody. And they just play team basketball. They're just a complete team. And that's something you see a lot of times from teams that make it well into the tournament. A lot of times we get caught up on the star players. And sometimes, look, stars can carry their teams. We, we saw it years ago with Steph Curry. You know, and we've seen it throughout, but think about St. Peter's as well was a team that just got it from different sources, whether it was Doug Edert, right, who had a couple of huge games kind of randomly. Um, Teams that play that style of basketball, unselfish basketball, they tend to do well in this tournament. They don't always make national championship runs the way the Aztecs have, but they do tend to play pretty well. And then there's UConn, the most dominant team in college basketball right now. Not the whole season, but right now a team that came into this tournament, you know, as a four seed, probably felt like maybe they could have been a couple of seeds higher than that. Maybe they could have been a three seed, right? But didn't blink at all. And, you know, had their, you know, fair share of lulls in the season. You know, there was one towards the beginning of Big E's play where, you know, and look, I follow UConn basketball a little bit more than some of the other Big E's programs, just because I have a friend who went there and we kind of talk about college basketball a lot. And you know, he was telling me, like, look, when this team's right, they're as good as anybody. He kept saying that. And boy, did it prove to be true. You know, because when it came time for UConn to be winning basketball games, they not only played well enough to win, they played well enough to dominate. And they left no doubt. And they've done it to Gonzaga. And they've done it to Arkansas. They've done it to some of the best teams in the country. And so, you know, it's just. They're the, they're, they've they're got to be the favorite. They simply have to be the favorite because of how well they're playing. And, you know, not only are they playing the best right now, they have the bigger name brand. They have been here before. It's been a little while for them, but they've been here before. And, of course, they had a run, you know, in the early, to, early 20, 2000s into the 2010s where they were maybe the most consistent best basketball program in the country or right there with the best, right? Um, uh, me and RP three have kind of had a discussion about blue blue bloods, and they're always kind of one of those fringe teams that gets brought up is you kind of blue blood. I don't know. personally, I value the history a little bit more and kind of the, the lengthy history, not just the last 20 years. So I kind of hesitate to put them in that conversation, but if you add another chip right here, you're really kind of making your case, right? So that's something to look out for. You know, the smallest margin of victory for them in this entire NCAA tournament is a 15-point victory against St. Mary's back in the round of 32. That's kind of hard to believe, right? I mean, through the Sweet 16, Elite 8, and the Final Four, they have won by more than 15 points in every game. And so that that just kind of makes you feel like not only are they a team that plays well, but they can close you out. They can hit the daggers. They have not let teams get back into the game and make it interesting. And to make these crazy runs, you know, look, I guess every year there's going to be a team that makes a run on winning close games and hitting buzzer beaters the way San Diego State has. But the way you'd prefer to do it is the way that UConn's done it, and that's just be dominant. Obviously not everyone's capable of dominating just like they have. You know, they're kind of the contrasting style to San Diego State in that you do know who you're going to get it from with them. And it's Sunogo inside who has been, you know, certainly a candidate for the most outstanding player in this tournament award. And then Hawkins, both of those guys. So I talked about on San Diego State how no player has scored in double figures in every game in this tournament. How about Sunogo and Hawkins have both scored in double figures in every game in this tournament? So the contrasting, right? They've got their two guys that they always rely on. And so, you know, from a San Diego State perspective, maybe that makes your game planning a little bit simpler and that, you know, you have to focus on those two guys. But You'd imagine that other teams throughout this tournament had tried to do the same, and it hasn't worked out for them, right? So, you know, look, can Mensa and some of those guys affect Sunogo in a different way and, you know, do enough to slow him down? How is this game going to be officiated? That's unfortunately something we always have to consider. Um, are they going to call fouls early on and kind of slow the pace of this game down and award a lot of free throws, or are they going to let the boys get after it, so to speak, and kind of hold their whistles and kind of let things play out in a more organic fashion. It's always, you know, back and forth. If the game gets too physical, obviously the are, the officials have to start calling it a certain way. But ho- I'm hoping to kind of that these officials kind of let them play early on, kind of see what we have here and we'll see how things go. I think it's a good fascinating matchup. Again, I you know, UConn's just got to be the favorite based on how they've played. It's it's simple as that. And um, you know, I wouldn't be I'd be kind of surprised if UConn dominates this game the way they've done all the rest. Even though you've already played in really big games at this point, like, it just changes when the title's on the line, you know? That mentality and that mindset from a player's perspective, when it's like, okay, yeah, I know we've played in big games all year, but this is the one. Like, this is it. This is the championship. All eyes are on this game. Um, And this is a chance to, you know, this is going to be a night that these players remember for the rest of their lives, win or lose, but they certainly like to be on the winning side of things, right? With the ring to show for it. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be a really good game. And, um, you know, I'm excited to hear Jim Nance and what's going to be his, you know, uh, last final four calling the game as a bit of a broadcasting nerd myself. I'm really excited to hear that. I know that's not necessarily what everyone else is tuning in for, but I'm just excited to see these two teams go after it. And um, I'm hoping for a really good matchup. So we'll take a timeout. But when we come back, You know, I do want to mention Cajun softball because um, there's a streak. You may have heard of it. It has to do with uh, Sunbelt winning, you know, winning Sunbelt series for, uh, oh, you know, just the last decade or so. I want to mention that and kind of my thoughts on the streak that was once again continued with their series sweep over James Madison. That's next right here on RP3 and Company.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist. Take that, dental hygiene. This is the game. One oh three seven Lafayette and one oh four one Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: Welcome back to RP three and company eight twenty three on the clock welcome back of course to the evco development studios in upper lafayette evco development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction dawson eiserle with you as i have been this morning with rp3 traveling back from dallas but it's almost time to talk to rp3 that will be next segment we will get him on the phone on the game hotline and uh, get his perspective on what was uh, an incredible weekend and um you know and the entire women's final four, probably, you know, I don't know if if you could say historically the best final four they've ever put on, but um, you know, it certainly seemed the TV ratings, the indications are that it was the most watched women's final four, and um, or at least one of the most watched women's final fours. So, we will kind of get his perspective on everything that was that uh, that event in the next segment. But I did want to touch on Cajun softball and. You know, they went to James Madison, and and I talked about this on Footnotes with Kevin a good bit last week, but, you know, there was a lot of trash talk coming out of Harrisonburg, Virginia early in the week about James Madison being the team to do it, the team to end the streak. 75 consecutive Sunbelt Conference Series victories for Louisiana heading into that series, and, you know, I think it's something... It's funny, I, I've known, you know, I've I've kind of been keeping track of it for a couple of years now when it was first kind of... I don't know how many years it takes of not losing a conference series in a diamond sport to start paying attention to this type of stuff, but I try to let people know sometimes like just how ridiculous that is. Um, and I know softball has a little bit less parity than baseball, a little bit less of the anybody can win any given day just because you know starting pitchers can go more often and things like that, so you have what is, quote-unquote, your best lineup more often. But it's still diamond sports. Like Anybody can legitimately beat anybody on any given day, if things go right, you know? And so to not lose a conference series, again, a conference, you know, your conference is compiled of schools that have similar resources, budgets, etc. I know not every team in the Sun Belt is created equally, and the Cajuns clearly have a little bit more invested into softball than others. But that doesn't mean that any of these teams are helpless. It, this is not like it's the New England Patriots playing against a community college. Uh, they make it look like that at times, but I just think sometimes it, it, it can't even be put into perspective how insane it is that they haven't lost a series in the Sunbelt in 10 years. And so, you know, I've talked about it with foot a little bit and we've kind of been saying, you know, his, his thoughts on it is that the team, the players probably wish it wasn't even a thing because it's just something that they have to hear about and they have to feel like they have this duty to protect the streak And, you know, I'm not even really sure how Coach Glasgow feels about it. But, like, as it keeps going, it only grows more and more intriguing. And so James Madison, you know, and I look, this wasn't from the players. I'm not saying it was from the players or the coaches. But the fan base, the general, you know, idea I saw on Twitter was that, hey, this is a team that feels like, you know, their fan base felt like they were going to be the team to end the streak, playing at home, playing pretty well. Um, You know, of course, the Dukes are a – you know, a very good softball program. They made a Women's College World Series run a few years ago. And Game 1 certainly looked like maybe they were going to get off to a hot start as far as trying to end the streak. as they had a lead, but the Cajuns battled back. Then they scored four runs in the eighth inning, and they went at 8-4. to four. Uh, this the middle game of this series on Saturday was dominant for the Cajuns. they went at nine to two and on you know Sunday yesterday they finished the sweep off six to two. And so all of a sudden once again you put the idea that they're gonna lose the series to bed. Now I will say this the Cajuns it's not as if they haven't lost some belt games in this stretch so you know don't get that confused. they have lost one game out of a three game series several times throughout the series this uh, you know this run. but they have not lost two out of three at any point in a Sunbelt series in 10 years now. And so, you know, I just kind of wonder what this does to the to the team itself. But the funny thing is, like you say, well, maybe it's not a good thing because of all the pressure, but they don't... Like, it's a streak that would show you if it was getting to them because they would lose the streak, like, that quickly. They would lose the series, and they haven't done that in 10 years. So um, I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of perspective on what, what it means to have done that. And it's really just incredible because, again, like, when you're playing teams in your conference... I'm not saying all schools are created equal in the Sun Belt, but you know, you're playing against teams that have similar, you know, athletic programs. Like that's why they're in the Sun Belt together. Now, I think the Cajuns are towards the top four or five programs in the Sun Belt in you know across all the all sports, and maybe even closer to one or two in that regard. But to just consistently be better than the teams that strive to play against you and strive to beat you in your own conference for that long um, is something I like to talk about because I think it should be talked about and one day it is going to end. Um, you know, look, I I, w- I won't say sooner rather than later because this could go on in a few more years for all for all I know. But the Sun Belt does feel like it's better than it's ever been. We've talked numerous times about all the teams in the top 100 of the RPI and. You know, I'll try and get an updated number on that and see how things are shaking out now that they're in conference play. Uh Marshall's a really great team, but the Cajuns aren't going to see Marshall in the regular season. You know, and, and so, you know, we've seen some other teams in this conference look really good to start the year. But again, James Madison was one of the top ones, and you just went on the road and swept them. So it's like. You know, who, who's able to do this against the Cajuns? I don't know if there's a team this year that's going to be able to get it done. Now, the other thing is that, you know, we talked about the conference maybe being as good as it's been. Uh, Southern Miss was a team in non conference that we thought, wow, maybe this team's pretty good. 15 and 6 record in non conference play. They're 0 and 9 in the Sunbelt. So I think that kind of maybe points to how good the league has gotten. Look, Marshall's 7-0 and in conference. They're 31-3 and overall. They haven't played nearly the strength of schedule that the Cajuns have. I would pick Louisiana to win a three-game series against them if they played them. But they won't see them in the regular season. We'll see if they maybe match up in the Sun Belt tournament game. Um, but that is going to be a team that the, the Cajuns have to contend with for the regular season title. If Marshall is to continue to play as well as they have, that's something you're going to have to consider um, South Alabama's also 8-1. and one. Now, the Cajuns will see the Jaguars. So that's, you know, the Jaguars are a team that's had a you know an, a softball program that's had success but hasn't had the sustained ability to contend against the Cajuns. Uh, that'll be this weekend at Lampson Park, actually. So that's a really good test for them. And, you know, the, there's things about this roster. It's not perfect, and this team's not perfect. I think the infield defense is still the biggest concern, and I know Kevin Foote agrees with me on that. Can they get some of those issues solved? The funny thing, though, is is it's always such a luxury that the way the Cajuns do it, they can solve issues like that while still winning games. And that's the point here. They're not losing. And so, you know, it's hard to be overly concerned when you continue to win games. Now, I know the Sun Belt is not the SEC in softball, and it's not what the Cajuns played early on in the season when they played the gauntlet of a non-conference schedule. Um, but to still be winning games while they try to sort some of these some of these issues out, I think is very impressive, and uh, I'm excited to see kind of where they sta- where they stack up against South Alabama this weekend and uh, moving forward into Sun Belt, you know, the thick of the Sun Belt Conference. So we will uh, continue to talk about that as it progresses. We got to take a time out, but when we return, we will have RP3 on his own show, of course, to uh, talk about the LSU women's national championship. That'll be next right here on the game. It really would not be a real episode of RP3 and Company if we didn't hear from RP3 himself. So we will do that now, courtesy of the Game Hotline. RP3, good morning, and how are you on a Monday morning like today?
3: I am doing splendid. Thank you for asking. And uh, look, uh, it is a glorious Monday morning. Survive the weekend and uh, got to witness a absolutely record breaking and remarkable national championship game. So, I couldn't be any better, brother.
1: Well, that's where I want to start. You know, even before we get into kind of the LSU perspective on this, um, you know, this has been kind of one of the more publicized and intriguing women's NCAA tournaments, maybe ever. So what was kind of the the vibe and and the overall perspective from inside of the arena as opposed to kind of where we watched it from the outside?
3: Well, I mean, it being as electric as it was, I noticed it all weekend. I noticed it when I arrived Thursday. For uh, Thursday night, I ran into people that came in for the Final Four that didn't even have a team that they were rooting for. I, I had a uh, wonderful conversation with an elderly couple from Minnesota who just came down for the Final Four because they wanted to see it. And they appreciate women's basketball. The crowds were great. It felt like an absolute big-time event. And it is a big-time event, but many times the women's game in particular isn't treated as that way. And they set a record for attendance for the entire NCAA Women's Tournament. Uh, They were sold out. And and here's the the crazy thing, is that on a big-time weekend where Taylor Swift had two sold-out shows in Arlington at AT AT&T Stadium, where the Rangers were taking on the defending nationally champion Philadelphia Phillies, where you had all this other stuff going on in the Metroplex, the thing that people wanted to talk the most about was the women's final four and that tells you everything that you need to know that where the women's game is and part of that is because of the star power there is you had a bit of a vacuum this year with UConn not making it and you know their run is kind of come to an end even though I expect Gino to have them reloaded for next year and have a huge chip on their shoulder but the game has these great personalities Don Staley is a great personality. Kim Mulkey is a great personality. Caitlin Clark from Iowa. Angel Reese and Alexis Morris from LSU. So you have all these kind of personalities that have grabbed the attention, have seized the imagination of the general sports public. And does it help that the men's Final Four doesn't have as much buzz because of Florida Atlantic and San Diego State and, you know, being in it? Sure, that that's part of it, but... I just also think that people are starting to come around to women's athletics and, in particular, women's basketball. It's taken longer than it should have, but the atmosphere in and out of the stadium, uh, out of the arena, rather, was one of the top five experiences I've had as a sports journalist in 20 plus years.
1: Well, strong words there, and and not only. The other thing to think about, Angel Reese will be back next year. Caitlin Clark will be back next year. Paige Buchers, who was hurt for UConn this year, will be back. So it seems like the Stars are here to stay. I want to go back a little bit to the first Final Four matchup because you know, in these Final Four situations, when you play these games in a course of three days, you don't necessarily get to think about it. This LSU team was kind of on the ropes for a little bit against Virginia Tech. What kind of changed that game around down the stretch and allowed for the big comeback to take place?
3: The weirdest thing happened in that game. So Vitek decided to switch in the second quarter of that game and really utilized it in the third. Dawson, they went to a zone. They, they borrowed a page out of the Tennessee Volunteers Playbook on how to frustrate LSU. And that's exactly what they did. And they struggled against the zone. They couldn't do anything with it. And, Vir- and Virginia Tech was making its shots. So they're up comfortably heading into the fourth quarter and we're like, oh, man, what is LSU going to do? and the weirdest thing happened, watching it inside American Airlines Center, LSU gets a couple of those early buckets to start the fourth, and they're still down, mind you. But you got the sense that those two quick buckets that they scored early flipped it, where all of a sudden Virginia Tech was the team that was trailing in the fourth quarter and not leading. And that's where I think Kim Mulkey's experience Played a huge role, and she downplays it, and everyone downplays it. But Vodtek had never been to the Final Four. Kim Mulkey has won three national championships prior to Friday night's Final Four game. Now she won her fourth yesterday as a head coach. Her seventh overall as a player assistant coaching coach, by the way. And she knew what her team needed, right? So in between the quarters, she huddled her team together and kind of just fired them up and challenged them. And this team is built in a certain way where they feed off each other, they feed off their coach, and even though when they're down, they never believe they're out of the game. And that mindset flipped, and all of a sudden that zone wasn't working as effectively. And all of a sudden you turned around, and all of a sudden LSU had complete control of the ball game. So they were able to flip a switch in that game. And it reminded me a lot of the Utah game in the Sweet 16 where they had their hands full and they had to kind of turn it on late and gut out a win, and they were able to do that against Virginia Tech. And obviously, Mulkey's experience winning two national championships as a player, appearing in four Final Fours in all four years at Louisiana Tech, appearing in seven more as an assistant coach at Louisiana Tech, all the Final Fours, the four of them she went to at Baylor and the three national titles. She may downplay it, Dawson, but her experience on the biggest stage in college basketball played a huge role this past weekend.
1: Well, so then let's kind of continue the progression of the weekend, right? LSU gets the big win against Virginia Tech. They're already at the point where we didn't really think they would get, let's be honest, in the championship game. But it feels kind of like, to me at that point, this is a great run, but now you got to play Goliath in the championship game. Here comes South Carolina, and the LSU didn't look fairly competitive against them the first time around. So not to say they wouldn't have had a chance in that game, but it felt like it wasn't going to be a good matchup. But then Caitlin Clark and Iowa do what we didn't think was even possible and beat South Carolina. So for me, it was like a shift in mentality of, well, this is a great run, but here comes South Carolina to wait a minute, now they've got a real shot here because, you know, Iowa, while obviously a great team to beat South Carolina, doesn't present the same issues that South Carolina did. So how did that mindset, Did it? Did, was it a big shift for you or did you feel like this team felt like they could win regardless?
3: It was a big shift. Staying there watching the other game on Friday night and seeing what Caitlin Clark did. And you knew that they weren't going to be able to slow down Caitlin Clark, right? She still was going to get hers, the big key was can they keep her under 40 points because she had scored 41 points and back-to-back NCAA tournament games was on a tear. And, you know, in that South Carolina-Iowa game, South Carolina had five or six chances in the second half to seize control of that game and win that game. They just couldn't get a shot to fall. And they had, you know, the, miss, the most inopportune time to all of a sudden go cold shooting. And South Carolina's not built with a bunch of shooters anyway, but they just couldn't do it. So if you're LSU, you're like, hey, uh, the big bad Goliath is not here. We're facing the team that slayed that dragon, but how much are they going to have left in the tank? So I think it changed their mindset. I also think they knew, and based on how they played and how they attacked, they knew they could score on Iowa, that Iowa's defense was not great that they weren't facing a South Carolina type of defense. So they knew that they had an opportunity to put up points and they came out aggressive. And here's the other thing, you know, credit Iowa, they came out and they, they led that game seven to three early. And it was a back and forth affair early on. And Caitlin had a couple of shots fall for her. And, you know, Alexis made it difficult for her, but it was a back and forth affair. And then, LSU brings a girl off the bench (laughs) who just lights up the scoreboard from down from uh, from three point range. And they just had more shooters. I mean, they set a record for most points in a quarter in a national championship game for the women, most points and a half in a women's national championship game and became the first team ever in women's NCAA tournament history in a title game to eclipse a hundred points that had never been done before. Ever. And LSU went out there and dropped a hundred and two in a title game. That shows you a team that's absolutely locked in and knows exactly what they're going to do and how much better they are than the competition. And they went out
1: there and proved it. And for so long that was they couldn't do that. They weren't capable of scoring at that clip, especially without it being from Angel Reese. So I did want to get your perspective on the, you know, we the star power was kind of the big topic here. And Angel and Caitlin Clark, they, you know, they had their moments late in the game, where you know Angel was kind of giving it back to Caitlin. But what did you make overall of Caitlin Clark being on display and everything she is as a player, Angel Reese, and just kind of, you know, what those stars did on the biggest stage?
3: They shined, and they shine brightly. Here, here's the thing. Everyone wants to talk about the the the, the taunting and, and calling Angel Reese classless and everything. I, I just think all that's silly. I, I just I just I just find it to be silly. It, Caitlin Clark downplayed it, didn't make a big deal about it in the post game press conference when they tried to ask her about it. The Iowa coach didn't care about it. It, it. it doesn't matter. Caitlin Clark, guess what? She talks trash. She talks trash. She does the John Cena you you can't see me thing, and she's done it all NCAA tournament. So she's a competitor. you know we're in a weird place where women uh, star athletes, female star athletes, if they're boisterous, if they're demonstrative, we're outraged by that but yet the men can do it and it's not a problem. So you know it's a bit of a double standard there. Caitlin Clark believes that she's the best shooter on the floor. She believes that she can hit a shot no matter where she's at. And people love watching that. They love watching Angel Reese. Talk trash and believe that she can make her shot anywhere. We're talking about the women's national championship game. It's dominating the sports talk airwaves last night, this morning, later today. There's going to be more talk about Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark in the last few days and the next few days than there will be the men's title game tonight. Think about that for a second. That's what Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese were able to do in Dallas over the weekend is that they have shifted the conversation to be focused on women's basketball, and it's overshadowing the men. When's the last time you could say that, Dawson?
1: Maybe, you know, certainly not any time that I can remember. So I'll I'll get you out of here with this one as we're coming up on the break. Kim Mulkey gets it done ahead of schedule. That's kind of been our, our, our mindset all year that she was ahead of schedule, and she ends up pulling it off. So... Where does this program go from here? I mean, the crazy thing is they're not even at their peak, certainly. Like, we know they're going to be pretty loaded again next year. Where do you see this team and and the future of this program uh, under Coach Mulkey?
3: Well, they're going to be a perennial Final Four national title contender year in, year out. And, And here's the thing that impresses me more than anything. You look at what they did last night, and you look at their eight players that they played. Two of them were freshmen, Poe is a JUCO transfer, and the rest are NCAA transfer portal kids uh, from across the board. LaDasia Williams began her career at South Carolina, finished it at Missouri, then comes to LSU for a year. Jasmine Carson, who came off the bench and just lit it up from beyond the arc, going five or six from three-point range. She uh, started off her career at Georgia Tech, went to West Virginia. She was a transfer portal kid. uh, Kateri Poole. Came from Ohio State. Angel Reese came from Maryland. Alexis Moore says, we know the great story with her and Kim. And Alexis began her career at Baylor and then got kicked off the Baylor team and then went to Rutgers for a year and went to A&M and then called and asked Kim if she could come play for her at LSU. That's five of your key contributors all came from the transfer portal in the last two years. She's got the number one recruiting class coming in. And you know what Kim's going to go do? Now that she just won a national title in year two and mastered the transfer portal. She is 60 years old. She is an old, fiery, veteran, old-school coach. And yet she adapted to the times and said, you know what, I'm going to be in front of this. I'm going to go attack the NCAA transfer portal better than anyone else. I make the argument there's not a better coach on the men or the women's side, Dawson, that has done a better job doing the NCAA transfer portal. And you know what she's going to do? Now she can go back into that portal after all these girls are leaving now because they graduated or they're out of eligibility. You know what she's going to go do? She's going to go get her three or four more girls. that are going to leave other programs. They're going to want to come play for Kim Mulkey because they know if they come play for Kim, they can win a national title. Oh, and on top of it, she has Johnson, who's just going to get better in year two. She's going to be an absolute star on this team. Angel Reese is coming back.
2: so yeah,
3: they're going to be in the mix yet again. Will they win a title every year? Probably not. That's very hard to do, unless you're UConn. But, in South Carolina showed this that as well, it's immensely difficult to repeat. But this program, because of Kim's passion, because of how players play for Kim, and they love playing for her, by the way, absolutely adore playing for her, and her mastery of the NCAA transfer portal, this team is going to be in the mix for lead eights final fours and national championships every single year as long as kim mulkey is the coach that's now what's going to happen moving forward
1: well it's going to be interesting and uh, i'm sure we will be talking plenty more about it when you're back tomorrow so uh safe travels and um we'll see you here tomorrow huh
3: i will be back inside those evco development studios tomorrow brother with you we'll chop it up great job today Uh, holding it down just make sure you don't wally pit me bud that's all I ask man that's all I ask look I hired you we'll see on board and now you're you know you're doing a better job hosting the show than (laughs) I do so no, just you know you know feel feel, you know have some compassion in your heart don't take my job just yet I'm not ready for that just yet. certainly
1: all right we'll see (laughs)
3: This is
0: RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros.
1: Well, what a Monday edition of RP3 and Company want to thank our guest, Jeff Palermo of Louisiana Radio Network, and, of course, RP3, who was a guest on his own show here today. Uh, once again, I've been Dawson Isla filling in for RP3 today. We will be back tomorrow, RP3 over in the host chair, me staying here in the producer's chair, and we'll have a lot to talk about. Of course, we'll continue talking about uh, the Women's National Championship game and um, take a look at everything around the sports world. It's a huge week. It's Masters week. Hadn't even got a chance to mention that yet, but the Masters, one of my favorite sporting events of the year. We'll start on Thursday. So that'll be it for RP3 and Company. Up next is Kevin Foote and Footnotes right here on the game.